Welcome to On DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. Thanks for joining us this week. And we are going to focus mainly on Army acquisition in this hour. We're going to start the program with a wide-ranging discussion with Dr. Bruce Jetty, the Assistant Secretary of the Army for Acquisition, Logistics, and Technology. He and I had a chance to sit down at this year's Association of the U.S. Army Conference in Washington. And at that conference, the message from senior leadership, as far as acquisition goes, was really twofold. One was to uh, really to try to reassure industry that even though there is a brand new Secretary of the Army and a brand new Chief of Staff, that the Army's sticking with the six modernization priorities the service announced two years ago. The second is that paying for those priorities is going to require the Army to get rid of a lot of the systems it already has in its inventory. The Army's already done quite a bit of that, cutting nearly $30 billion worth of spending over the last two years. A second round of that so-called night court process is now underway. Officials are looking to save another $10 billion. And we begin our conversation with Dr. Jetty there. As both the chief and the secretary talked about earlier this week, there is going to have to be some further divestiture in order to afford these six modernization priorities that are so important to the Army. So, so what's what's that go-forward process kind of look like in terms of how you figure out what to divest and how quickly? So it's, it's, a, it's a pretty focused process, uh, Jared. It, uh, so let me give you an idea there, how, this, how the whole process is structured. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike, um, General Mike Murray is the commander of Army Futures Command. And I have the Assistant Secretary of the Army Acquisition, Logistics, and Technology. We attempted to find the longest name we could. Uh, <clears throat> so as the ASALT, I have all of the business process, all of the, fun- the acquisition development, all of those pieces. Um, our relationship is that we're both co-chairs on something called the EEPEG. Why there are two E's, it's the equipping peg. Why there are two E's is we can't figure it out, but all the pegs have two letters. They're identical, E-E-S-S-T-T. I was going to guess E-peg was taken, but okay. Yeah, yeah, no, it wasn't. It just, maybe this is the second round. I don't know. If anybody does know that, we'd... I'd love to know why we use two letters for it all. No one's been able to explain it. I'll look into it. Um, but the EEPEG is where we do the equipping analysis. So all of the funding of new equipment goes through the EEPEG. Um, General Murray looks at it from the user's perspective. He represents the chief, who is, by law, the requirements development and, and, and identifier for the Army. He, uh, Murray, has been delegated to do that, the, the the reviews for the chief on the EEPEG. Um, I am the secretary's piece on the EEPEG. Murray looks at it from, do I need this? Is that fit for the current fight? Is it really designed for the prior fight? Has the fight changed in such a way that now this would be ineffective, but I need something else? Or I don't need that at all because now the new way we're approaching the problem will actually be uh, accomplished through a different uh, item, a uh, new piece of equipment, doctrine, technology, whatever. So th- that becomes General Murray's obligation to try and figure out the operational aspect of a given item or how many of them do we need? Is one brigade, two brigades enough? Or are we going to give everybody one of those? Uh, and, and so he works those things out and comes to the peg. I work the business piece out. So if he, for example, says, you know what, I know that we've been working on this uh, this doohinky, 
and they've been $100 million invested uh, is on the, on the contract, but we really don't need them anymore. Uh, I'd rather just take that money and put it someplace else. I'll look over on the business side and say, well, you have $100 million on it, but we've already delivered $80 million worth of the product to you, so you're only going to save $20 million at most. Is that acceptable to you or not? Does, does, would keeping the $20 million worth of material would that on the contract would that be better he makes that operational decision we make the business decisions and um and and that gives us a very good method by which we can identify those things which are of lesser importance and those things are of greater importance and then be able to transfer funds from the lesser to the greater and is all of this happening up at your level and general murray's level or is some of it at least happening down at the peo and pm level where they're coming to you and saying we think it's time to divest program x um so it, it yes it happens all the way uh from bottom to top uh there are different in fact there are other other efforts i can i can mention uh transition to sustainment and transition to divestiture are two other policies that we put in place uh to try and get rid of our excess equipment or equipment that we don't want to sustain anymore or those things which are in production and we we want to have the pms and peos focused against new developments so we transition a completed system into sustainment and army material command then takes that over so we we have several other methods by which we manage development and sustainment of given products or the divestiture because we're not using them anymore there is however a a stair-step process. Of course, the Pentagon loves sequential processes, so we have the sequential process, Council of the Colonel and a one-star GOS, General Officer Steering Council, and they go through it and they try to whittle it down and give us the critical decisions as opposed to uh, letting us go through every line all the time. Let's back out a little bit and talk a bit about that relationship with General Murray and, and, and Futures Command more generally, because when the Army first started talking about setting up Futures Command, you know, I th- there was some question about, well, isn't, isn't some of this in, infringing on ASALT territory? But, but General Murray seems to be very happy with the way the relationship between the two of you is working and the relationship between the PEOs and the cross-functional teams. And, I, and I'm just wondering how those relationships look from your point of view. Yeah, I would agree with General Murray. Um, he and I get along very well. Uh, the the POs and PMs uh, get along very well with the CFT leads. At, whenever you establish a new organization and give it a new charter, there's always growing pains. They're, they're, they're not disastrous in any manner of means. Um, I kind of liken it to, uh, you, you know, there's, a, there's the old analogy, the, the storming, forming, and norming stages of creating something new. When when you just plop down an entirely new organization, say now figure it out, uh, there, there's there's some there's some scuffing that went along, but that's okay. We we General Murray's and and I worked very well together. We worked on trying to to resolve any issues, and occasionally we'll still have a tornado roll by or a thunderstorm. We 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 just work through it. It's it's okay. Um, for, for the, the 
across the board, I think that we have a very good re uh, working relationship between the PMs and PEOs. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm talking less about the you know the one-on-one the -on -one relationships, but but really just a, as a process matter, how is it working so far in terms of that that kind of linkage between the requirements folks and the acquirers? So what, what difference has it made? Yeah, so so I, I know we've we're on we're on radio, so you can't if you can I'll hold my hands in front of the microphone. Okay. So. To describe uh, the perspective we had in the past, there was the requirements people, my left hand, and the acquisition people, my right hand. And in the past, the requirements people on my left hand would ball their fist up after they wrote a nice requirement document and bring it over and push it against the balled up fist of the acquisition community on the right side. And they would come in contact with each other, but never really mix. And the, ac and the requirements didn't really have anything to do with the acquisition policy or, or, or or strategy, and the acquisition strategy didn't necessarily have much to do with the requirements development. Um, th there, that was that often caused a number of problems. What the objective of of working through the current program with with AFC Army Futures Command and the acquisition community is, uh, and I'm now changing my hands from two bald fists punching against each other to interlocking fingers. So the left hand has still got the responsibility for requirements, and the right hand still has the responsibility for acquisition. But you know, the vast majority of my PMs and PEOs are uniformed officers who at least were uh, successful company commanders six, six or seven years in service before they moved into the acquisition community. Uh, so they have a good foundation, and, and pretty much all of them have combat patches. So they all are pretty well soldierly in underlying lair. They've just spent the, the latter portion of their careers in a material developer stance. The people that on General Murray's side tend to be people who um, spent more time in the field and would have a greater depth of experience and operational concepts and a little more uh, uh, breadth. So if we bring the two together like a, like a pair, set of interlocking fingers instead of those fists, they can still tussle with each other, but the but the right hand fingers can influence the left hand by raising operational issues that a material developer might see, but an operator might not. Mm -hmm. Conversely, the left hand might be able to raise some strategy opportunities within the acquisition community that might that the acquisition community may never have thought would be acceptable to the operational community, so they would have never had moved in that direction. So the two were interacting with each other. So does that mean sometimes they pull and push on each other? Yeah, but that's okay. That's, that's, there's some of that is healthy. So it's early days now, but I mean, have you, have you started to see examples uh, of what you're talking about? Like where, for example, that, you know, the operators help, you know, get involved in helping to figure out an actual acquisition strategy or even an acquisition vehicle rather than just tossing it over the fence to uh, the acquirers and letting them figure it out. Oh, sure. Um, <clears throat> so last week I was out in uh, Seattle, Washington at, at, uh, at one of our contractors and we were working on IVAS, Integrated Visual Augmentation System. Mm -hmm. uh, what this is is uh, essentially a kind of a, it's kind of a pair of cross between Oakleys and ski goggles, I guess it'd be my description of them. But these goggles um, actually project right onto your retina the images. So I have in front of me virtual reality. 
it's, it's just amazing how clear and, and realistic the virtual reality is. But it's not virtual reality in, from the sense that I have to be in some dark room or I'm watching a movie. It's actual live and connected up to a, a very powerful little computer. And so I can use it as a, an operational tool. I go out, I can see where I am, I can, if I need to navigate, I've got a compass right before my eyes if I wanted, I can um, put, put markers in, I can bring my map up, I can put markers on that, I, I have access to a bunch of things that I can put up, pull up in one eye or both eyes, I can do three-dimensional objects, I can look out to my front and see my right and left boundaries, um, and there, so it's to minimize the errors that, that we, we sometimes have when you're trying to get all of this terrain data in your head. I can do virtual reality training. So all of these things are wrapped together. Well, it's a pretty complicated system. And we've done this in just a little over a year. From I, I have an idea to we're getting this thing done. So that only could happen by a very close cooperation between the user community, in this case CFT for soldier lethality, and the organization, PEO Soldier. They're both out at the uh, facility where the contractor's doing the work. They both have a joint facility here at Fort Belvoir where the PEO usually resides. Now, in, in the ca this case of the, of the CFT lead, because he also is in charge of the infantry school, he's down at Benning part of the time and then up at Belvoir and then out in Washington and several other places because we have other systems. So. We're doing that as a spiral, so the so the technical piece and the, and the acquisition piece turns in. Say, well, you know, we ought to do this test, but we don't want to wait to a formal test. Let's get the soldiers in it right now. So you go back to the user community that 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 General Murray's people have contact with. They go out and get a few people from the Ranger Regiment come in, marry them up with their PMs, marry them up with the contractors. They go out and they do wild and crazy things, come back with some new suggestions We were to roll the code, and we're doing this pretty much every week of putting these things through the paces. So that, that's, that's just a prime example of a tremendous amount of progress that's being made where it's, it's inherent in the way that the two organizations are working together. Dr. Bruce Jetty is the Assistant Secretary of the Army for Acquisition, Logistics, and Technology. We'll come back and talk about some of the specific acquisition policy changes he's been working to put in place after a quick break. This is On DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. Dr. Bruce Jetty is our guest during this part of the show. He is the Assistant Secretary of the Army for Acquisition, Logistics, and Technology. We sat down for a wide-ranging discussion at this year's Association of the U.S. Army Conference in Washington. Let's pivot to a couple policy issues in the, in the time we have left, and, and let, let's talk a bit about the intellectual property policy. And this, this was an issue that, even before the policy was written, you started talking publicly about as, as one of your priorities when you first came in from, from private industry. Talk about you know, your experiences as, as a business owner that helped inform what you thought needed to be you know, a concrete policy here, and, and what you've seen over the last year that it's been in place. Well, when I was asked to consider taking this position and put my paperwork in, even before I knew that I actually was selected, I kind of sat down and said, well, what, what are my top 10? What would the top 10 things that I'd like to accomplish 
and this was this IP was one of them. I had been in the military uh, as an acquisition officer before, and I saw how poorly IP was managed and dealt with. Uh, frankly, from the from that standpoint, I saw that the government was paying for development of IP, but never taking delivery. And then they turn around way after the fact and say, "Hey, I need my IP," only to get a big bill to have it delivered to them. And now I go out to the civilian sector. My company did development of technologies. I have IP. I have patents. I know the difference between a patent, trade secret, and copyrights. I, I, I know how these pieces all work. When I did work for another company, they paid me. It was their IP. But it wasn't just their IP. I delivered it to them. The government didn't, didn't have the habit of doing that. On the other hand, I also have had the government come in and fundamentally take some of my IP and then publish it. And uh, that, that doesn't honor the investment I put into developing the IP, even if it's a trade secret. At least let the competitors figure it out themselves at their expense. So when I came in and what I wanted to do is establish an IP policy that would make it honorable for the, the owner and funder of the IP in the process of sharing the IP. So as a, if, if a company is paid for the development of a particular IP, then they ought, to, they ought to be properly licensed and, and, and paid for the IP as part of their bid samples, that type of thing. If the government, on the other hand, is uh, the funder for the IP, then they, then they own the IP. And when they own the IP, then they get delivered the IP. Now, how does that work? If I ask that stuff at the end instead of at the beginning, then I'm going to get these bad answers that I've seen in the past. So what we've been doing is, as part of our IP policy, is that IP is actually considered in the contract proposals. So we put an RFP on the street. It says, by the way, if you're going to submit an, a response to the RFP, tell me what you're in your pricing volume. Tell me what your cost is identify, just as you do in the commercial world, what you believe is your IP right up front. Because if it isn't yours, it's mine. Because I'm paying for everything else. And I think importantly, before that RFP ever goes out, the program has to have an IP plan for that program. Oh, absolutely. Be because you, you, won't, you may not know the details of what IP is going to end up being yours, or you may turn around and say, I will not accept your IP for this function or capability. Uh, that that you should put that out, out in front. But in the end, when you get them back in, I want to know what the what's the IP, what's your deal on your IP. So let's say let's say one manufacturer submits a uh, a bid and it's a hundred thousand dollars for the do hinky, and IP he says it's all yours. I'll deliver you everything I have. The other one says no, it's only seventy five thousand dollars. Well, if I didn't ask the IP question. $25,000 difference, the $75,000 is, is good. But in the long run, the, the second guy, the, the, the $75,000 bid says, but by the way, I want this licensing fee and that licensing fee and that licensing fee. You can never have access to this and you have to pay for that. And so you add all that up and I look over the life of the program and all of a sudden I find out the $75,000 system cost me millions more over the life of the program than does the $100,000 system. And that's, I, I want to honor the industry's IP where they've invested, but I want to honor the taxpayers' dollars where they've invested. And that's, that's 
uh, a focus of what we've been trying to do with the IP policy. The policy is not a very long document. It's almost you could almost say it's a statement of principles, although it does have a lot of thou shalt's in it. But but correct me if I'm wrong here, but it almost seems like this is as much as anything an effort to nudge program offices toward thinking about IP, which they're capable of doing if somebody tells them to, right? Well, yes and no. Um, if you're not familiar with something, then, then some degree of training and some degree of, of providing guidance is is warranted. So we have a policy, but we also have an implementation program. Okay. So this is this is one of my one of my other ones. I we, we tell people, for example, to take risk, but then we don't define what risk means. We tell people to do IP policy, and then we don't define what we're talking about there. Generally, within the government, we like to make sure that we're doing the right thing. Everybody in the government that I've ever dealt with, with few exceptions, have been doing as good a job as they possibly can, given what they've been instructed to do. So how do I make sure that if I'm going to ask them to change, that I provide them more guidance than simply the policy? And that's what we do. We set up these these guidebooks, and then we go, in, in some cases, we go out and assist them if there's a transition we go out and help them in, uh, in that transition. We put teams together. For example, we put a team together on IP to go help with our two, first two big contracts associated with IP. Um, we will not do justice to advanced manufacturing in our last five minutes, but let's do our best. Um, talk to me about what the Army is doing here. It sounds like you're trying to, 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 to think through how you're going to use advanced manufacturing, both in existing systems and new ones, right? Yes. So there's there's a little bit of a difference in how you would normally look at things from an advanced manufacturing for new or old systems or legacy systems. Let me make sure that I, I, I define uh, advanced manufacturing. Yeah, lots. Um, a lot of times people think, oh, advanced manufacturing, that's, well, it's, it's, that's uh, additive, you know, printing. Mm -hmm. And it is, but that's only one component. You can have additive manufacturing where you're adding layers and layers together until you end up with an object. Uh, you can also um, do subtractive manufacturing, which is, I, I used to have this when I had my company. We put a block of metal into a machine and you'd give it a, give it a dimension that you wanted it to be in and then shavings went everywhere and then when you got the block out, it looked like the doohinky that you wanted it to look like. It was actually a really fun machine. So some, in some cases, Additive is better. In some cases, subtractive is better. Uh, printing a bolt doesn't mean it's a bolt. It means it looks like a bolt. <laughs> there are some machines which can make a bolt a bolt, even if it printed, but they're expensive and difficult and more challenging machines uh, to operate. Subtractive machines are a little bit more common and, and understandable and, and can be dealt with. So which one we use is got to be part of our analysis for advanced manufacturing. Um, there are several other machines that are coming along. Uh, one of them is called conformal. So you take a sheet of sheet metal and you put it in there, and you program it, and it bends it like origami into the shape you want. That's that's a pretty cool machine. It's actually a very strange machine, and you keep your hands in your pockets when you're near it. <laughs> uh, there, there's also been some machines that do uh, casting, and others doing forgings. So, there, advanced manufacturing is evolving. And we wanted to keep the focus on advanced, not on just one method. Our objective is to take a look at it, how it can, it can change the way that we sustain the whole fleet. So, for example, if I have a vehicle go down for a broken bolt, 
that bolt that I need, the nearest one may be 8,000 miles away. Well, of course, you know, I can get one of those in FedEx overnight. The problem is I don't always go to places where FedEx delivers or that FedEx will deliver because it may be in a combat zone with active fighting. In the classic approach, the, the chief often talks about um, the industrial age model versus the information age model. Industrial age model, I, I just make big piles of bolts in different places and then I have to rent the warehouses, I have to fly the bolts in or, or ship the bolts in. I make warehouses and stockage, I have to have people watching them, I have to have rent for the property, et cetera, et cetera, and then I have to ship them forward. Instead, what we've done is we've, we've created a few initial laboratories where we ship them out to the, the forward support battalions where they can then make some of the parts. To make that all work, it goes back to the IP policy because some things I have to have IP value, you know, I've got to own the IP or I have to have rights to the IP or there's a licensing agreement for it. And then I can, some things I don't. I'm frankly, an SAE standard bolt, I don't need an IP policy for. I just make the bolt. As long as it meets spec, I'm good. So how we manage that entire flow of information is a very different beast than we've had in the past. But that gives me the ability to get rid of a whole lot of tail that I have to deploy just to keep these vehicles up. The make your, make your own stuff in the field piece of additive manufacturing has been talked about for a long time in the DOD context. It, it, but it seems like at least one of the new things here is that you're telling industry that you want them to apply advanced manufacturing techniques in their own facilities and you're going to incentivize them to do so, if I've got that right. Yes, and that, that goes for um, particularly for new designs. So this is a little bit difference between the, the legacy, where I, my, my primary focus on the legacy systems is sustainment, and then the, the developing systems is, so what else could you do with the flexibility of, of advanced manufacturing? Um, in some cases, we've had, we've had uh, rocket motors that have been proposed that you can't machine the shape. It, there's just, we, nobody can figure out how you'd make that shape, except if you don't do it with advanced manufacturing. And, and it provides efficiencies that we would not otherwise have had. Uh, and, and there have been a number of examples similar to that, that, that this advanced manufacturing is, is having a unique impact on what we can do in the future with future systems, as well as how to sustain better in, in a combat environment our existing legacy systems. Dr. Bruce Jetty is the Assistant Secretary of the Army for Acquisition, Logistics, and Technology. We'll return to the topic of intellectual property management in the Army after another short break. We'll also dig into the brand new DOD-wide IP policy on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is On DOD. I'm Jared Serbid. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. And we're going to briefly circle back to the topic of the Army's intellectual property policy. We discussed that briefly in the last segment during our interview with Dr. Bruce Jetty, the Assistant Secretary of the Army for Acquisition, Logistics, and Technology. Dr. Jetty was also asked about the new IP policy during a media roundtable at this year's Association of the U.S. Army Conference. He gave a little more detail on how it's working so far. I, I can't tell you the details because I've got competitive issues that, that preclude me from doing so, but what I will tell you is uh, fundamentals of what I've seen in a number of uh, ongoing competitions. 
Um, remember I said that we put, we've put together some RFPs that have gone out and have been answered and have been assessed and those things, and I just don't know where we are in, in at making what announcements at this point. But we asked, when you bid, I want to know what your bid is for, for your product, but I want to know what the bid is for your intellectual property. What are you declaring in IP? And if it ain't declared, it ain't. Um, and if it is declared, then tell me what the deal is with it and everything else is mine, and what you, you could tell me up front what your delivery cost for the intellectual property is. Um, those assessments have actually been made with respect to a number of uh, the companies that provided, for, uh, provided some, some recent uh, responses to RFPs, and they had an impact on the judgment of the, the vendors and the, and the selection process. We've also gone back and done an, an AAR, an after action review, on ourselves to see how well we did in putting it together. Uh, we will be going back out after the announcements and talking to the, uh, uh, those people who, those companies that uh, submitted responses to those RFPs and ask them, so how did, how did they see what we asked and was it, could we do better to get at what we should be doing, which is working properly and honoring people's IP and IP investment. So that's a, a, a little cryptic because I'm not telling you company names at this point, but it seems to be working. It isn't perfect. Uh, we're learning from it and we'll get better at it. Uh, and I think companies are going to get better at it because uh, let's just say not everybody was really um, forthcoming. And I think that didn't help them. Dr. Bruce Jetty, the Assistant Secretary of the Army for Acquisition, Logistics, and Technology, talking with reporters about the Army's new intellectual property policy. And as it happens, within about 48 hours of those remarks, the Pentagon released a long-awaited DOD-wide intellectual property policy. And to discuss that new policy and how contractors will need to learn to work with it, we're joined by Alan Schwatkin, Executive Vice President at the Professional Services Council. And, and Alan, this was obviously influenced by the Army policy. I'd say it's a relatively slim volume by DOD acquisition standards, but for people who haven't read it yet, I would say some of the high points are, you know, it says we as a department are going to take intellectual property seriously. We're going to make it a core competency in our workforce and our acquisition workforce, and uh, every program is going to have an IP strategy going forward, which put those things together along with the rest of the instruction seems like a big deal to me. What, what, what are your takeaways from it? Well, I think it is... It's an important uh, the whole topic is important. I'm pleased to see the department issue the instruction, uh, get that out and revise it from uh, earlier versions. Uh, and there's, as you suggested, there's a lot behind this that's uh, implicated in and uh, related to the, the policy, uh, the instruction that's out there. So, for example, we know that the Army has already issued a very robust policy of communication early on with industry developed requiring uh, army programs to have uh, a clear strategy for the use of intellectual property in advance uh, this uh, new instruction uh, builds on that it doesn't replicate it there still needs to be more written but it highlights it it assigns clear responsibilities for something called the IP cadre right. you won't find much about the cadre here in the instruction but uh, in the FY18 NDAA, Congress directed DOD to create a cadre of uh, primarily civilian employees, but it could include uh, uniformed military and maybe some contractors to be uh, additional expertise available to the department. And so 
roles and responsibilities assigned to uh, Kevin Fahey, the uh, Assistant Secretary of Defense uh, for Acquisition, spelled out in this policy and this instruction. So uh, there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, every piece of this is relevant, uh, but more, you can't look to this and say, aha, I now understand IP policy. This uh, really sets roles and responsibilities uh, and a little bit of uh, guidance. Yeah, the, the creation of that cadre seems important to me, too. I mean, it, 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 I mean, the implication is that both Congress and the department feel that, that, you know, there is not enough resident expertise in intellectual property within program management offices organically. Does that seem right to you? No, absolutely. In fact, a couple of years ago, I don't remember the exact reference, but uh, Congress asked the department for an evaluation of their uh, intellectual property skills, uh, and the department in a report to Congress said, we don't have them, uh, we don't, and we certainly don't have enough. Uh, and as intellectual property grows in importance in these programs, uh, not only in the initial development, but obviously in the long-term sustainment of those po uh, programs, uh, IP policy and uh, expertise within the department to, uh, to to advise program offices about it becomes all the more important. So the cadre is an important backstop. It's not a solution. Uh, it's not a long-term solution, but it can help bridge a gap by having at least some available uh, to each of the military departments and OSD as they're looking at establishing broader policy uh, and then actually ex executing that on each individual program. As you said, a lot more yet to be written on this, but from an industry perspective, what are, what are the things you're going to be most interested in watching as this policy development process continues to take shape? What are the potential pitfalls for contractors as DOD flushes this out? Well, the first is going to be uh, how DOD assesses the need for intellectual property and what rights uh, to that intellectual property it will insist on in each of these programs. I won't see that. Uh, with the Professional Services Council uh, often don't see the individual program approaches, but our members tell us all the time that too often the department overreaches in their demand for uh, intellectual property just in case they might need it. I think the Army policy that I referenced earlier that Secretary McCarthy uh, issued uh, is really a balance, trying to get that balance for uh, how much the department needs, what it's going to use it for, and when it's going to need it. So I think that's going to be the first test of this, is how it gets operationalized in terms of rights. Uh, secondly, uh, how much will the department be willing to pay for that intellectual property? Uh, today, there is, uh, it's often assumed that it comes along with the development cost. Uh, but as more and more development is being done in the private sector at private expense, and there's clear push by the Department of Defense for the contractors to do more on their own nickel, if you will, or dime or dollar uh, through independent research and development and their own research, uh, the balance of ownership and rights to data and how much the government is willing to pay for that will also become important. And finally, as we just talked about, uh, who has the skills to negotiate those, um, both the understanding of the intellectual property, how it's used in a program, and the ability to adequately negotiate on behalf of the government uh, for that activity. All right. Alan Schwatkin, Executive Vice President at the Professional Services Council. Thanks as always, Alan. Always a pleasure, Jared. 
One more break, and when we come back, a few minutes with General James McConville, the Army Chief of Staff. We'll talk a bit about the latest reforms to the Army personnel system as the service tries to move itself toward modern talent management techniques. That's next on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbian. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, this is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. And we're going to round out our Army-focused hour this week with a few minutes of conversation with General James McConville, the Army Chief of Staff. He is brand new to the Chief of Staff position, but before that, he was the Vice Chief and the Army G1. As chief, he's pledging to put a new emphasis on people, and specifically talent management. McConville says he wants to capitalize on soldiers' talents by using dozens of variables to measure and categorize their skills and aptitudes. As a first step in that direction, the Army's implementing a new methodology to select its battalion commanders. He talked with me about the battalion commander assessment program and how it'll work. In the Army, the most consequential command uh, that we have or at least one of them is, is battalion command level. That, that's a, uh, an officer that's at the 16 to 18 year mark. They command our battalions and they have a significant impact on our soldiers, non-commissioned officers, and officers that are in their battalions. It's also where we get our future leaders from. Uh, we pick about 450 battalion commanders a year and we pick 450 colonels a year. So if you make battalion command, you have a good opportunity to be a colonel and to move on to be a future leader. So what we're doing is normally we, we pick our uh, battalion commanders by a command board where we just look at their past performance on their officer evaluation reports. Now we're still going to do that, but in the future we'll do a screening board and we'll take a look at their past performance and based on their past performance they will be screened into a five-day assessment period where they, they will go through the Battalion Command Assessment Program, which is a five-day program uh, that allows them to be assessed on their comprehensive leadership assessment battery, uh, which which checks tests out their 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 ability to uh, lead in, in the future. There's a writing screening uh, test that makes sure that they can write, oral communications, there's a, a fitness portion of this to make sure they're deployable, and there's also a board where senior officers get, get to see how they interview, and all those come together to give them a score, and that's how the future uh, order merit list we made for the uh, Battalion Command Selection Program. So why do this? I mean, what variables do you think OERs are not capturing? In well, when we, when we look at um, the officer evaluation reports and the boards, um, the board is looking at thousands of officers and they get an opportunity to look for a couple of minutes at what that officer's past performance has. And, and it's been a good system, but we just want to make it better. And, and that performance will actually be part of the scoring that comes in. So there'll be a certain percentage based on past performance. But I think the idea of actually looking the officer uh, in the eye by general officers and seeing how they perform side by side with their peers will give us a much, much better uh, picture of who the future leaders are. Do you envision doing this at, at other levels of command or does this kind of solve the problem since it is the entry point of that pipeline? Well, I think right now we're, we're going after battalion commanders. Uh, I could see eventually battalion command sergeant majors and I could see brigade commanders and command sergeant majors, but what we want to do is we want to try this out. Uh, see how it works, and then we'll take the lessons learned and go from there. 
Back in January, I think, then Secretary Esper asked the Army Science Board to do a fairly comprehensive study on talent management. Yeah. So it, 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 did some of the science behind this come from that? Or, or you know, how is this informed by, by actual... Well, we've had a, a lot of um, distinguished uh, researchers take a, take a look at this. Some is from the Science Board. Um, we've brought a lot of uh, the professionals in from all different types of industries, from how other of our high-tech companies are doing it, and we've brought our officers in and, and we've taken what we think is the best of breed and combined them into a program that's going to pick the, the, the best officers. And this is, we are prototyping this as we work our way through. So we have, we have the capability to try this out and take the lessons learned in each each iteration, we think we're going to get better and better and get into the, the officers that we need to be our battalion commanders. Are, to do things like this, are you leaning on any of the, the new authorities Congress has, has been giving you lately, especially in officer management? Yeah, yeah we are. Um, and what, what Congress has done is they've recognized, uh, as, as we move into the future, we're going to have skill sets that are not going to form the, the normal linear pathway that we have in the Army, which is, is, is you're required certain gates along the way. And so they've given us the capability to opt out of promotion boards, which will allow officers that want to maybe get a PhD uh, to take the time to do that or want to get develop a certain skill set uh, to do that. We can do direct commissions now. So we have some with a certain skill set like cyber, one of these very technical skills, we can do what we do for doctors. We can bring doctors into the Army up to the level of, of uh, Colonel or 06. And so this is going to change the way we actually bring people in the Army. It's going to change the way we uh, employ them, and it's going to change the way we retain them. And it sounds like what you're hinting at is you start to manage different officer communities differently. Is that fair? Yeah, I think I think it's it's definitely communities, but I, w I would suggest it's also the individual. So take take a, a, a cyber uh, officer, a non-commissioned officer. What I envision in the future, uh, just the fact you're cyber doesn't necessarily mean that all cyber personnel or all cyber sergeants or cyber officers are the same. I've seen it already. Uh, we had a, a cyber sergeant who was extremely highly qualified. In fact, they, they told me there's only 10 of, of these capabilities in the world. And this sergeant was had the opportunity to, to go work in industry at, at a very high salary. And he asked if he, he that he to stay in the Army if we could make him a GS-13, which is a mid-grade civilian serv servant, because he, he wanted to continue to serve. And so we were able to do that. We adjusted our personnel system to allow him to serve in that role because he had the specific skill set. What we want to do is get that specific skill set um, so we can keep highly talented young men and women like that. If some of the stuff that you're starting to dabble in works, for lack of a better word, how does the Army look different 20 years from now? I mean, we can say we'll have better officers, but what does that mean? In well, I, I, think, I think what we're going to see is that you know, the Army will always be people. And when, when you look at industries going through the same thing, when they're competing for the young men and women today, we, we have to compete for what their desires are, what they want to do. And I, as we've um, studied the young people today, they want purpose, they want belonging, and they want a pathway to success. They are not necessarily motivated by salaries, which is different than maybe in the past. So we want to offer them that. And that's what we think we're going to be able to do. Last question on yeah. this. Does, does the character of the senior leadership of the Army start to look different than it does? There was a photo that, that kind of made the rounds in social media last week in the Oval Office. All of the department's senior leadership 
Every single one of them was male, with the exception of one, I think, all white. Now, whatever you want to say about that photo, I think the thing you have to say about it is that that leadership cadre does not look like our military, and it doesn't look like our country. So do you start to get after some of that with this? Yeah, I think so. I, th I think we have a sacred obligation to make sure that our army reflects the diversity of the country. And it, first of all, it's the right thing to do, but it's something that we are very aggressively pursuing. And we see in our force right now that you know the, the young soldiers and officers that we're bringing in today, they're our future leadership. And as we go through the process, what I want to be able to do is all throughout uh, the, the different ranks is make sure that our force remains diverse with the capability to develop those future leaders that are eventually going to be at the top of the Army. General James McConville is the Army Chief of Staff. He talked with me at the Association of the U.S. Army Conference in Washington, as did our earlier guest, Dr. Bruce Jetty, the Assistant Secretary of the Army for Acquisition, Logistics, and Technology. If you missed that conversation, we will post this week's show, as always, at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DOD. Also find the program in our podcast feed. You can subscribe on Podcast One or Apple Podcasts. That's it for this week's edition of On DoD. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbu. So long. You've been listening to On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.